don't know if you all knew this, uh, but last Friday um, was National Crayon Day. Crayon, like Creole crayon. Do you all know that? I didn't know it until like my daughter showed up just like wearing all like the same color. She's like dressed in like all pink and then she changed and she's like, ah, I want to dress all in white. She explained to me that like it's National Crayon Day and at school there's going to be an assembly and all of the kids are going to be dressed up in their favorite color. I actually got to go to that assembly. April was there too. Good to see you. And um, it was awesome. It was beautiful. Uh, at, at one point uh, during the assembly, all the kids were lined up in a row. They had put like words like white, pink, red, yellow, orange, green, sort of like the, the color spectrum all along the, the wall. And all the kids who were wearing that color, like they stood under their, you know, the, uh, under the color and we had like a big group shot. And it was cool because it kind of looked like they were like in a box of crayons. But my favorite part was not when they were all sort of like neat and tidy in a row, but you saw all of these kids dressed in all of these colors in the gymnasium, like singing songs and playing like clap games, laughing uh, and singing together. And sort of this picture of like one, like one school with lots of different colors, I thought was a beautiful and vivid depiction of what our life and the family of God is to be like, uh, what it's meant to be like. This semester, we're looking at Paul's letter to the Romans. And the first half of the semester, we looked at that first half of the letter, really chapters one to eight, in which Paul explains to his readers, including us, what is meant by the gospel. Like, what is the good news about Jesus? On this side of spring break, we're asking, what does it mean to live in light uh, of this gospel? And uh, to do that, we're looking really at chapters 12 to 16. We're three weeks in. Uh, Week one, Paul's answer to that question, how do we live in light of the gospel? is like, don't live a bifurcated life, but give your, your whole self to Jesus. Week two, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Uh, by the renewal of your mind. Like, get God's word inside of you. Pay attention to what you're consuming. Put into practice what you've heard so that by testing you might discern what is good and beautiful and true. But now we're going to read the very next section, verses 3 to 13. And here's how I would summarize what we're about to put up on the screen here. In view of God's mercy, sort of in light of his gospel, we're going to resist individualism And we're going to choose instead to live life in community. We're going to resist individualism, live life in God's community. Let's hear how Paul puts it in verses 3 to 13. He says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts, according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what's evil. 
Cling to what's good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. This isn't just Paul's word to us tonight. It really is God's word. So let's pray and ask that he'd help us to understand it. Father, thanks for bringing us together on a Wednesday night uh, in this space. Thank you for feeding us good food. We ask now that you would feed us with your word. Uh, Lord, would you give us eyes to see what we need to see uh, from this passage, ears to hear what you have to say, and hearts that are sensitive and soft, ready to receive and to believe all that you intend to impress upon us. We ask these things for your good, or for our good and for your glory, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, the gospel is not just good news for the world. Um, it's, it's, well, it's good news for the world, which means that it's good news for everybody here. And it's, not, it's good news that touches every person, but it touches every part of our life. No stone is left unturned. So when we start talking about living in light of the gospel... What we mean is we're starting to think and really rethink about every part, part of our life and really sort of like subjecting it to the light of what Jesus has to say. And as soon as we start doing that, it's not long before we start thinking about our identity and questions about meaning and purpose and what God might have to say about those things. I think it's important that we understand that when we ask questions about anything— but including, of course, like meaning and identity and purpose. We're not asking these questions in a vacuum. We're asking them as persons who live here, you all who live on this campus, as college students in Burlington, Vermont, right? The least churched, least religious city in America, right? You're doing that here in this post-Christian corner of what is increasingly becoming a post-Christian country. And we're doing it in the year 2023 and what philosopher Charles, Charles Taylor calls the age of authenticity. In the age of authenticity, the most important thing that you can do with your life is to discover who you are. And then once you've discovered who you are, or maybe even that word discover is misleading. Once you decide who you are or define who you are, you're life goal or purpose is just to yell and shout and scream your identity out to the world for all to hear. That's about what your life boils down to. Figure out who you are, define who you are, and then just shout it, express it. That's what life, meaning purpose, is like in the age of authenticity. In the past, folks would say, if you want to understand who you are and, frankly, why you're here, you need to understand yourself in relationship to others, including God and the people uh, that make up your life, and even sort of your place in time, space, history. All of those sort of relationships matter for your sense of self. That's how people used to think. But we're not there anymore. And it's not because that way of thinking was wrong. It's just that we've moved on. We're in a different place now. We're living in a hyper-individualistic and secular culture that says there is no God. Everything that exists is here by happenstance. It's all arbitrary, and history is heading nowhere. And for those reasons, 
God's dead, it's all arbitrary, history's heading nowhere. Because of that sort of mentality or that outlook, they're saying, don't look out there for meaning and purpose and identity because it doesn't exist. Look in here, go in. And then when you decide what's in here, draw it out, shout it out. In the words of Elsa, let it go, (laughs) right? I'm not a fan of the TV show, The Bachelor. (laughs) I know that might come as a shock or surprise to you, but that's not my number one TV show. I've seen one episode in my life and this scene that I'm about to describe to you, okay? It's the 2011 season. You know what I'm talking, anybody? (laughs) Episode eight, Bachelor Brad Womack is in Seattle visiting his Love interest, Chantal O'Brien. Okay? Maybe you've seen this. Okay, when Brad goes to her house, Chantal's dad gives him a tour of sort of like this palatial home that Chantal lives in. And in the middle of the tour, Brad and Chantal's dad, they stop at the foot of this giant statue that's in the middle of this beautiful foyer. It's not a museum, it's their house. And this statue is maybe 15, 20 feet tall. And the first bottom half of that statue just looks like a bunch of rock. But the second half of the statue, there's this guy, shirt off, chiseled chest, long hair. He's holding a hammer in one hand, and he's got a chisel in the other. And he's carving himself out of the rock. And Chantal's dad says, this is what you and I are. This is what we are like. We're self-made men. Right? This, I think, is not just how Chantal's dad sees himself, right? Like a self made man chiseling himself out of the rock. This is how our culture trains us to think about ourselves that we all are self made men and women, that we are isolated and independent, sort of growing out of the rock by ourselves, recreating and making and remaking ourselves, that we are self-determined and that we are self-defined. Who am I? What does it mean to be me? In our culture, the answer is this, right? I am what I make of myself. I am who I choose to be. Well, Paul's letter was not written to, it was written originally to a first century audience, but I want you all to see, and I think you can detect, that this has 21st century relevance as well. He writes in verse 3 of our passage, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. What he's saying in this verse is pretty simple. He's saying, look, I want you to think of yourself. I want you to see your identity in light of the gospel. Right? I want you to run these questions of identity and meaning and purpose through the lens of your faith. He even says, like, I want you to sober up. Right? Sober up. When we sober up, when we think straight, when we sort of put on the glasses of faith, we are reminded, oh yeah, 
this is where I came from. We're not self-made men and women, like our culture says. But with the eyes of faith, we see, right, we're made in the image of God. We're made in, by God and in the image of God. God fashions us out of the clay. We're not chiseling ourselves out of the rock. He, he forms us sort of out of the clay. He breathes his breath into us. And he creates, his, he creates us in such a way that we have the capacity to make visible the invisible God. Our identity as image bearers, it elevates us and it humbles us at the same time. As Hannah Anderson writes in her book, Humble Roots, it reminds us our calling is too grand and too glorious to be contained in human categories, but it also confronts our pride by reminding us that we're not God. Right? When we sober up, when we sort of like look at ourselves through the eyes of faith, we kind of see ourselves in this right light. It reminds us of our origins. But it's not just that. We're not just reminded of our origins, we're also reminded of our salvation story. Right? We're made in God's image, but we're also sinners. In the words of one theologian, we are glorious ruins. You and me are like that beautiful mansion that was built a while ago, but has since fallen into disrepair. The good news is that our broken down house of a life and our broken down house of a world has a property manager. It has an interested buyer, you could say. Somebody who's willing to pay the price to buy you back and to fix you up. Someone who didn't just make you, but wants to remake you, to renew you and restore you to that glorious image. In the words of Jack Miller, you've heard this before, cheer up, you're worse than you think you are, but you're more loved than you could imagine. Right when we sober up, we put on those, the, the, the goggles or the glasses of faith, we begin to see this as true of us. But finally, when we put on the glasses of faith, as Paul puts it, when we think of ourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has given us, when we, when we put this on, we will see ourselves also not as independent individuals, but as integral members of an interdependent whole. In verses four and five, Paul writes, for as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Verse four begins with this connecting word for, which is a a word that insinuates there's a logical connection between verses three and four. How, how are they connected? What is this logical connection? I think what Paul is saying in verses four and five, you know, on the heels of verse, verse three, is don't think of yourself so highly that you think of yourself as existing above sort of the, the creation. Sort of thinking yourself so highly that you exist outside of it or beyond it. Don't do that. And don't think of yourself so highly that in some ways you lift yourself out of community. You don't exist by yourself. You exist in in an interconnected network of relationships, an interdependent whole. Very often, 
we think of our lives uh, with God in very individualistic sort of terms. I want to put it to you this way. Your life with Jesus is personal, but it's not private. You have a personal relationship with Jesus, but not a private one. Very often we think that when God saves me, he sets up a new relationship between me and him. He becomes my heavenly father, and I'm his kid. And y'all, this is true, right? God relates to you and wants to relate to you in this very intimate way. The problem is not with thinking this way. The problem is that it doesn't go far enough. You're only thinking about yourself. If God adopts you into his family, and then God adopts you and you and you and you, like if he's adopting all of us into his family, it's not just that he's saying, I want to relate to you as my kid and you as my kid and you as my kid. He's also saying, like, I want you all to relate to each other as siblings, right? We're not just children of God. We become brothers and sisters of one another. Like, how else can I put this? If you're calling Yahweh dad and I'm calling Yahweh dad, it means we have the same dad, which means that like we're part of the same family, which means like we're brothers and sisters. We both have this very personal relationship with God, but we also have this new kind of relationship to one another. So this is kind of what Paul is getting at here. When we put on sort of the glasses of our faith, when we sort of sober up, we're not going to just think of ourselves as individuals. We're going to see ourselves as family members because we are. The two most popular images for the Christian life are life in the family and life in the body. And both of these show up in the passage that you heard read. That body imagery really in verses 3 to 8, and then in verses 9 to 13, he uses language for like Philadelphia or brotherly love sort of like the love that would define like life and the family. Both of these images, life in the family, life in the body, communicate an essential truth, which is this. We don't belong to ourselves, but we belong to a community. The good life is found in here, right, in the body, in the family of God, and not outside of it. Right? Our growth into Christ's likeness, it happens here in the body, in the family, and not outside of it. Warmth and love, it is found here in the family, in the body, and not outside of it. You want to live, you want to grow, you want to become the person God made you to be. Even if you're coming at this with sort of like a very sort of modern self-actualization sort of mentality, like you want to reach your full potential, you want to experience life and life to the full, God says, great, welcome to my family, Be a part of my body. That's where all of that's found. When Christ joins you to himself, he joins you to his family. And in the family of God, also known as the body of Christ, there is unity and there is diversity. Unity is not the same thing as uniformity. Uniformity is synonymous with sameness. Everybody looks the same talks the same, does the same thing, etc. But that is not what you find in a family, and that's not what you find in a body, for that matter. In a body, in a family, what you discover is unity and diversity. One body 
has many members, eyes, ears, mouth, fingers, toes, intestines, and so on. These different body parts don't look the same, and they don't even do the same thing, but they're all joined to the same one. They all help it function. They're all sort of united around a common life together, you could say. And Paul is saying what is true about the body could be, is true of us, right? Brothers and sisters and the family of God. There is unity and there is diversity. All of us are equals in this community, but we're not all the same. And thank God, right? God pulls us together. People who might say to the other, I have nothing in common with you. And he says, but I'm calling you. And in calling you, I'm calling you all together. I'm calling us all together, to be joined together. Because it's not just about you and me, God's saying. It's about you and you being part of me and also the two of you coming together, of us being one. Y'all tracking with me so far? Yeah. Okay. Good. You get to choose your friends, but you don't get to choose your family, right? You're born into it. And the same goes for our bodies. We're born with one. We inherit one. Life is found not in choosing something other, but in loving what we got, what God has given us. RUF, we say, is a place of unlikely friendship. God's call on your life means that you are making friends in this room uh, with people that you might not have otherwise met. Right? You all are coming from different places, yeah, not just around the country, but even from like this campus, and you're studying lots of different things. Like The thing that brings us here together is not common major, a common campus, like a common hobbies. Like There's a lot of diversity even in this room. But what brings us together is this question, like, who is Jesus really? What would it mean to follow him? Like, this question, his pursuit of you, it's what is all bringing us together, right? It's what makes us one. And what is happening here in this space, God bringing people together who might not have otherwise met, you actually discovering, wow, our lives would have never intersected if it weren't for, like, RUF and you're becoming like good friends with the people that you sit beside. Again, people that you wouldn't have chosen otherwise. Like what's happening here is just a little microcosm, a little snapshot of what God is doing with his church. God bringing all kinds of people to himself. Some whom you would readily like and click with. Others you might not be so sure. Saying like, we've got nothing in common. I'm not even sure if I like that person. But God is good, and he knows what's good for us. If like just paired up with like, we would have a body that was all fingers and no nose, or all eyes and no ears, or all guts and no brains, right? If like just hung out with like, the body wouldn't do much. It wouldn't look like much. It wouldn't be able to accomplish much. Thank goodness, right, there's one body with lots of different parts, and thank goodness that like God's vision of like the good life is, is not just our vision of the good life, which is like just us hanging out with like people who look and think exactly like us. 
but he's bringing us into like one body that is diverse, made up of all different kinds of people from all different sorts of perspectives, but unified around the same God and the same good saving work that he's done for us in Jesus. I want to take you back uh, to that Edmonds Elementary Gymnasium on National Crayon Day. That's a hard word for me to say, crayon. Crayon Day. In a classic eight-count box of crayons, you'll find red, orange, yellow, green, blue, violet, brown, and black. Okay? Not yet. (laughs) As the size of the box grows, so does the diversity. In a box of 64 crayons, you're going to find colors like Tickle Me Pink and Periwinkle and Salmon and Sea Green. A box of crayons is an excellent illustration of unity and diversity. All of them are in one box. All of them are not the same. And what's interesting to me, at least, is that if you want that red crayon, you're going to also get the yellow, the orange, the green, the blue, etc., along with it. Because these things don't come separately, right? They come together as a unit. I think this can be a helpful way of imagining the kind of life God envisions for us. But I think there's a pitfall here too. I think a lot of us like the idea of unity and diversity in theory, right? But the practice of this can be messy at times and intimidating. Crayons, for example, they look good in a box, sort of like in their neat little rows. You know, like when you open up that that box and they haven't been used yet, it just looks pretty. It looks organized. (laughs) But crayons were not made to just sit in a box. Crayons were made for the page. Right In the box, you've got unity and diversity but it's a siloed version of it, isn't it? A crayon-shaped silo where the crayons over here aren't really connecting with or interacting with the crayons over here, right? On the page, that same unity and diversity is put to work. The reason why you want a box of crayons is so you can draw and fill in a colorful picture. And the reason God has brought us all together in uh, one body with lots of different parts or lots of different persons is so that we can draw and fill in a gorgeous picture of what life in God's kingdom is all about. Kept in a box, that that, that unity, diversity might look neat and tidy, but it falls far short of what God intends for us because he brings us together so that we would not just look good, but that we would do good and be put to good use, right? When God brings us together, we wind up with something better than we could create on our own, but that process can be messy too. One of my favorite kids' books, now we can cue it up, (laughs) is um, The Day the Crayons Quit by Drew DeWalt. This is a great story. I highly recommend it. The story begins, one day in class, Duncan went to take out his crayons, and he found a stack of letters with his name on them. He opens up the first letter. It's from Red Crayon. He says, hey, Duncan, it's me, Red Crayon. We need to talk. 
You make me work harder than any of your other crowns. All year long, I wear myself out coloring fire engines, apples, strawberries, and everything else that's red. I even work on holidays. I have to color all the Santas at Christmas and all the hearts on Valentine's Day. I need a rest. The next letter is from Purple, who's happy to be used for grapes and dragons and wizard hats, but it's frustrated that a lot of his gorgeous purple color goes outside the lines. It goes on like this. Pink's upset because she's only been used once in the past year. Yellow and orange are fighting over who's the true color of the sun. That argument is driving green crazy and all the other crayons in the box and so on. Right? The idealized vision of unity and diversity, right, uh, is all of these crayons together in a box, right? It's never used. It's neat and tidy. But once you start pulling them out of the box, once you start actually doing stuff with them, it can get messy. Feelings can get hurt, right? People can be crossed. This realized vision of unity and diversity, it's a lot messier, but it's a lot more beautiful too in the end. You end up with masterpieces like Duncan's, like this. All the colors in the box are here on the page, just like they were in the box, but here you actually see something has been made of them. And these colors that never would have interacted with the others, like the, 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 the white and the red on this side and the, the browns and the blacks, they're all touching here, right? This is kind of what God envisions for us. Not just painting our lives with one stroke, one color, a multicolored, mag- magnificent masterpiece of our lives together. Duncan showed his teacher his new picture. She gave him a good work sticker for coloring. And amen. You know, Scripture's honest. That's we can pull it down. I'm going to wrap this up. Okay, Scripture's honest about where we're going to find life. It's saying you want to find life, you're going to find it in Christ and in His family as a part of His body. But scripture is also very honest that life in the family can be complicated and that life in a body can have growing pains. And if one part suffers, we all do. And this is why scripture doesn't just call us into the body. It also gives us commands to help us maintain unity. This is what verses 9 to 13 are really all about. After calling us into the body or reminding us that that's actually where we fit, it says here, let love be genuine. Abhor what's evil, hold fast to what's good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Show hospitality. When we think soberly about ourselves and we put on the glasses of faith, not only will we see what we're called to, Check this out too. This is where it gets even better. When we put on these glasses, we will see the one who will give us the strength to live out this kind of lifestyle. The way in which we're going to be able to do all of this and and any of it well is not because of us trying harder or just doing better. We're going to be empowered to do this when we see Jesus genuinely loving us. When we see him hating evil, so much so that he's willing to to die on a cross for us. 
and holding fast to what is good. Him loving us with brotherly affection and securing our adoption into the family of God. Him showing us honor. Him washing our feet. Him not slacking off and getting lazy in love, but him showing up day after day for us and for what we need. Him asking, like, how can I help? Him showing us hospitality. Him loving the stranger. Like, his ability to to make the outsider an insider. An orphan, a child. Like, Jesus does this all for us. And and to the degree that any of this touches your heart, to that same degree, you're going to be able to show it to other people. We live, friends, in a hyper-individualistic age that says there is no meaning or purpose or identity beyond the meaning, purpose, and identity you give yourself. But Jesus says that's not true. Wisen up. Sober up. What I have for you is far richer, far better, and far more beautiful than you could ever dream or imagine. Come to me and be a part of my forever family. Come to me and be a member of my body here on earth. Come to me and be a crown in my marvelous masterpiece.